Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. The shower scene in Psycho, the bicycles lifting off the ground in E.T., the match lighting the fuse in Mission Impossible. Each of these scenes became iconic in large part because of the music that went with them. So let's explore the relationship between image and sound in cinema. Joining me today are composer Jeff Beale and filmmaker Linda Maroney, who is a programmer of the One Take Film Festival. Jeff, welcome. Hello, hello. And it's nice to have you here as well, Linda. It's great to be here. So Jeff, you're in town to conduct the score of a screening, a little documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. I, however, got to know your work when you were just simply a fantastic jazz guy. So uh, how did this transition happen from fantastic jazz guy to award-winning soundtrack writer? Yeah, it's it, I, it was kind of an organic um, evolution for me. I mean, when I came here as a student at the Eastman School, I was a trumpet major and I played in the jazz, but I was always composing and that was a big part of my life. Um, when I found film music, I actually found something very closely closely related to jazz in the sense that it's a totally collaborative medium. Like you were saying in your opening, you know, the music that it, music the music in film is in service to something, and it's very much like when you're playing jazz. You know, it's all about listening to the people around you reacting, kind of like being an actor in in, in a scene. So, um, I think storytelling is a big part of it too. I think when you're a jazz improviser, the the great jazz improvisers are able to tell a story in their improvisations, and that's just always what I've been I've loved about writing film music. Now, for a period of time, the Eastman School of Music didn't even have a jazz major. But people would come in and they play jazz and then learn the classical stuff, too. Did they have a jazz major when you were here? They did, but uh, and it was only, uh, at that time, it was only a, a, a master's program. So I was actually a classical trumpet major and um, sort of audited a lot of the other classes. That, that but, but the nice thing about the culture of Eastman has always been it's very, very eclectic and open, small school. So you could kind of find your home, find out where you belonged. Um, and that, that was the case for me. And, um, you know, it's really fun to be back here, especially because the orchestra where we're going to be doing this concert screening with is this fantastic student-led group called the Empire Film and Media Music Ensemble. This is a bunch of students who, of their own volition, were so passionate and excited about playing film music that they actually started this ensemble several years ago at the school. And we've had them on twice on Backstage Pass. They are so super... Um they're, they're just great players, but they're also really, really dedicated to this idea of the art of film music. Absolutely, and I, I think it's one of the things that will that really moves 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 the conversation forward for the concert hall. I mean, the music in the concert hall is this wonderful, beautiful uh, thing that we have. But but it, to keep that relevant, you know, to to a contemporary audience, you know, we always need to sort of look out in the culture to music that's being created that that can possibly have a place in the concert hall. So that's, I think that's a, a welcome addition to the repertoire. It's, it's sort of early innings of, I think, music for media and film sort of earning its place amongst the, uh, the great masters that we're used to hearing. Do you remember the first movie that you scored? I did, actually. It, it, it's, there's a Rochester connection to it. it was, it's called Cheap Shots, and there's a little, little theater connection to it because um, uh, the uh, owner of the little theater... Um, well, uh, Jer- that was Jerry Steffes' film. Jerry right? Steffes, yeah. and yeah, and Bill Bill Cockard, Cockard yeah, uh, was one of the producers. Yeah. And I met them here in Rochester before I even graduated. It took them a few years to raise the money, and it was a, such a fun film. It was this is sort of the heyday of the beginnings of indie cinema in the late '80s, and it was a black comedy and started starred Louis Zorich, and and I just uh, once I I had so much fun. Once I started writing for picture, I kind of never turned back. It was just. Uh, 
a, a really, it was a revelation how much I loved it. I, I, it was fortunately she had already passed, but I learned that my grandmother uh, back, she was, always, she was a musician, she was a piano player, but I learned um, that when I was working my, on my first silent film score for The General, that she actually played piano for the silent movies in, in, in uh, Idaho, you know, and so that was kind of a cool connection I didn't even realize. So that somewhere the ancestral DNA was just screaming out to, you know, be a film composer, I suppose. Do this. You must do yes, this. Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, and I don't think, I, I'm, I, I think there's a strong connection between musicality and DNA. You know, obviously people sometimes have an innate talent, but you look at a lot of musical families or, or musicians and you, you can usually, you can often trace back some, 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 some roots there. So what was your very first impression? The first time you see this film, it's finished, it's your music, and it's all in a piece. What was your, your first reaction to that? Oh, boy, you know, um, it's, it's, it's thrilling because it's, it's not just about you. It's, it's about the whole experience. So um, just like I'll give you for example, we, we premiered The Biggest Little Farm at the Telluride Film Festival back in August. And, and um, you know, you know the film, you, but it's been maybe a few weeks since you finished the movie and you sit there in the theater with a bunch of people and you have this amazing collective experience. And it was so... Uh, exciting because I always loved the film from when I first saw it but I had a feeling it was going to have it's the type of film that could have a really prof profound and, and meaningful effect on the audience and I really felt that and it was pretty special. Now we have a filmmaker in the room which is awesome because this is a collaboration that is completely beyond my ken. I have no idea how this relationship even begins to work so if we can sort of talk a little bit about the process. Uh, Linda, do you have a sound in your head as you're making the movie? Um, sometimes a sound, sometimes it's more emotional of different ways you want to express things. So it's what's fascinating to me. I mean, I have a thousand and one questions I want to ask Jeff too, um, is, you know, at what point do you usually come in on a project? You know, how, or, I'm sorry to take over at this point, but I'm curious about how early is it when the filming is happening? Is it during a rough cut, a fine cut, or, you know, at what point do you usually come in? Yeah, it, re it really depends on the project. I, I love it when I'm involved early because... Um, you have a time to sort of evolve the music along with the editing, especially in documentary filmmaking. The editing is really when some of the, a lot of the heavy lifting is done. Um, but um, a lot more more often than not, it's more towards the end. The film's been made. They've edited it. They've sort of got a structure together, and then the filmmakers they'll come to you with a semi-finished movie. They often will have a temp track, like I'm sure yep, you use absolutely some so it's like placeholder music, which sort of represents, like you say, the broad the broad emotional strokes. Yep. But it's really the, the part that's so fascinating to me is when you really start working on it, you know, scene by scene, cue by cue, it's film is a living thing. And as you start to paint, you know, those colors in there, you, st you start to see things in the film that you never knew, maybe even knew were, were there. And I'm always uh, struck by that, you know, how, how much of a discovery and how many layers you can go down into a film emotionally once if, if it's a well-made film and has layers of meaning you know the music is somehow it's the most abstract of art forms and it can somehow unlock these areas of storytelling that are that are uh, expansive and and sort of uh, often symbolic and metaphorical and they enable you to sometimes connect the dots of the story in a way that I don't think any other element of a film really really can do so how does one go about finding the, the right composer, because obviously you need the right composer for the project. Where do you find a composer who you know is going to be 
the one who's going to be in yeah. your backyard? It, it depends. It depends on the project. So some projects I've worked with local people here. On other projects that I've been a producer, we've used Phil Glass, which is a pretty pretty great thing to do. Um, before I even did documentary, I worked in animation for these. this, well, it was Faith Hubley was her name, but she had a husband, John Hubley. They had a studio. Mm. And they were, you know, won three Oscars and nominated seven times, but they had they were huge jazz fans. This is mm. going back to jazz and improv. So Dizzy Gillespie did their, their stuff all the time, and then he also did voice work for them. It becomes... Um, you know, you you learn a new language having these creative conversations, and you build upon that. And then, you know, you, you tend to like working with certain people, and you want to do it as much as you can. With films, it often takes years to make a film, so you may have to, you know, work with new people in between or, you know... Um, in that case, but but it's really about making these connections and feeling comfortable, and filmmaking becomes a family in a certain way. Where what is that conversation that you have? And and, and it's going to go into it's going to go in two ways here. It's going to go from you to Jeff, and from Jeff to you as well. So when you have this conversation, filmmaker and composer, what gets said, Jeff? Well, I think you know the composer's job is really to translate things into music. So a, a lot of the most successful conversations aren't really revolving around music per se. They might be some broad strokes, but a lot a lot of the a lot of the the time it, it's more about like Linda was alluding to before, it's about emotions, it's about feelings, it's about adjectives. It's might about might be about the shape of a scene, the arc of the story. Um, those are some of the things that are most useful because they sort of give you the target, you know, and then uh, often the temp music will be useful. You might refer to what's in the temp, what you don't, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. It's uh, often um, useful to have something there to refer to. There might be one instrument that speaks to you. You know, instrumentation is, is can be really crucial for 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 a score. You know, I, there's there's a great book called "This Is Your Brain on Music," and um, you know, the, you no, know, this, but I love the title. It's a great book. And um, he talks about how um, people can recognize their favorite music not from just from a few seconds of it, and you're not even picking up the the actual notes or the anything. You're just picking up the timbre of it, the sound. So that's a part of our brains that really responds to timbre and the way an instrumentation tells the story. And it's sometimes something that's very fitting, but sometimes it's unusual or just different. It's just a, it's it's a discovery, really. In many ways, you know, and going this is harkening back to your jazz days when you would sequence your CD, you know, sequence your album, and um, and back in my rock and roll days, that first single was always supposed to be track one, you know, side one, track one, and and that was exactly what they talked about that that piece of music that has that immediate visceral grab yeah that pushes yeah pushes the listener into into the sound yeah it's an exposition really and and i i love i still love long form recordings that are structured you know like a like a really complete thought and that idea of of a of a piece of music and it's the same way in film really the the, the, the trickiest scenes often you work on are in the opening scene and the closing scene I think the opening is a lot of times the most difficult because the audience knows nothing. You're, you're by definition, it's all exposition, so you're really setting up the world. You know, I look at you know like uh, you know like, uh, TV shows main title themes. You know, obviously p most people know me these days from House of Cards, so that's a great example. You know, that piece of music, that minute and a half, had to represent. It had to tell you what the world was like, who the characters were, but it had to do it in sound. What is your side of the conversation like as a filmmaker when you have? found the composer of your dreams now um it, it's i think going back to what we we're saying of, of of that creativity and it's working out ways to enhance 
you know, the film and not overpower it in any way. Um, but we were talking about the beginnings. It, it's also setting up a tone for the whole project. It's often a way to give the audience sort of a, a code of like, this mm -hmm. is what it's going to be about and sort of setting it up, whether it changes along the way. Sometimes it often does, but it's a way for that viewer to have the key and stuff to, to sit in. So how much time will you have to put oh, something that's a together? Good question. Yeah, it really, it really varies, you know. Um, uh, sometimes it's a matter of weeks, sometimes it's a matter of months. It's really depending on how quickly, how soon you were hired, you know. Um, the Biggest Little Farm, I was actually the second composer hired on the movie, so the whole thing got done in about four weeks. Pollock was the same thing, I was the third composer, it got done in, in a short time. Other films, I've had longer. Um, you know, it's funny, maybe it's because I'm a jazz musician, but I, 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 don't, I don't struggle for ideas, they come rather quickly, so for me, I don't put a lot of weight in how long I spend on something. Obviously, you need the time to do the work and to give it the excellence that it deserves, but I tend to have a sort of a manic workflow anyways where I just sort of lose myself in something, so there's a certain, there's a certain amount of time that's usually just sort of gets, that usually gets taken up anyways to write it, but it's not usually a great amount of time. It's more about quality time and, and, and having the mental bandwidth so you can just completely shut out everything else and f just focus on that, that task at hand. So this is an advice time. As a filmmaker and as a composer, how should one speak to the other? Or somebody's just breaking into the biz on either side of this. Well, I think it's helpful with with directors if they have a good sense of the, what their project is. You know, young directors sometimes aren't sure and they don't know and, and it's harder for them to express what they're thinking. Um, so the more you can sit back and really, really know your project and sort of what you want to get across is, is the most useful, I would say, for a composer to, to work with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, clarity about the story you're telling, where you want the audience to be in the story. Um, you mentioned surprises a little earlier on. I think that was really good because a good story doesn't always, you don't know what's going to happen. That's what makes it a good story, right? Especially so, with documentaries. Sometimes. Especially with documentary. In fact, that's how they happen. You know, the best documentaries have this serendipitous way of capturing something that could have, you know, not necessarily been unfolding the way it did. So you want to set up the world, but you don't want to give away the world. You don't want to lead the audience, but you want to make it feel some, somehow it was, um, there was an inevitability that's built into that. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I'm still, I think the longer I do it, the more fascinated and the more mysterious it gets to me in a strange way. You know, the interesting part of it becomes even more fascinating to me and more mysterious. You're really well known for your <laughs> arresting, your, your heart stopping uh, theme to an Emmy award winning theme for A House of Cards. Do you remember the moment that came to you? I do. It was, it was funny. It was, um, I wrote it before the film had been shot. I met with David Fincher about the show, and he sent me several scripts. And he comes from directing commercials, so he loves to have music even before he starts shooting. So based on that meeting and some creative things, he, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, he gave me an example of what he thought he wanted, and, and I thought that was, that was good. And I didn't, after the meeting, I think my agent called and said, you know, David would like to get a few sketches from you before, even before he starts shooting. So I thought, well, it's probably like a little audition here, which is okay, you know? But I also thought it was a great opportunity to to write away from picture because a lot of what we talk, we do, we look at the film, we respond to it. There's something different that happens in your brain when you're just dreaming about the world. So based on the scripts, I sort of wrote four sketches or five sketches, and one of those was the bones of that of that tune. It was sort of there. Obviously, it got expanded on and orchestrated. And I always thought when I wrote it, I thought this this might be the one. Um, 
but I gave all the sketches to David and, and they were just editing the first episode and when the next time there was another piece of music in the main tile that by this time they'd shot all those time lapses of Washington by the next time the film came back to me they had put that sketch in there so I thought yeah this is this is going to be it you know it was just sort of very very organic the way it happened you morphed that though from season to season as well I, it was different each time just changed a little bit it evolved just like the story I mean I, that's what I loved about the, the the show is that each season was really its own novel within this greater structure and we we tweaked it a little bit added some instrumentation the strings got deeper and fuller you know uh, the mix got more murky sometimes. I added an operatic voice for season three, I think. You know, things like that happen. It's so different from the music you wrote for Monk. Uh, <laughs> this is like day Light years, and night. Yeah. That's what I love about it. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you feel this way about filmmaking, but part of the fun of doing film is you can sort of, I think of myself probably more as like a character actor than a, than a person who does the same, plays the same character. I think if any film composer would tell you that, that's, that's part of the fun is you can kind of reinvent the world. It's really serving the story and, and um, you know, like two brilliant shows, brilliant leading actors, but completely different characters, obviously. The Biggest Little Farm is part of the, the One Take Film Festival. And uh, Linda, you put this all together and are a documentarian as well. Now, may, maybe give us a hint as to why the documentary has gone hot. It is really a hot thing. It's all over Netflix. It's all over the movie theaters. Everybody's doing the documentary, and we're all watching them and really digging them. Well, it's about time. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, I honestly, I, I think um, there's so many amazing films being made. Um, and, you know, I think for a long time we were taught the documentaries were like the vegetables at the table. Like we yeah. have to watch them. They're going to be really good for us. But, you know, it's the white male telling us how to think about the Kalahari Bush people, you know, from BBC. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and and that was what we were given for a long time. Not that there wasn't other stuff here and there, but but it's exploded. And, you know, the price of equipment to film really great stories has come down it's great quality um and and we're open to seeing so many more stories than we ever before but the the form is changing and evolving the stories are changing and evolving so it's really like a you know as you're talking it's really a living breathing art form you know there's the definitions and the boundaries of it are, are pushing all the time and so it's really exciting to watch what do you think people are looking for when they go to, a, when they opt to watch a documentary? What is somebody searching for? I think one of the things they're searching for is a good movie and a good story. Yeah. And I would say, quite honestly, just to sort of piggyback on what Linda said, I just think this is one of the most creative areas of filmmaking right now. It just seems to be um, where where some of the most fascinating work is being done and 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 it's almost like you know I, I lo I'm working on another, another commission for a silent movie you know that's a perfect example where they had less resources to throw at the screen they didn't have CGI they didn't have sound they didn't have dialogue so what stepped in and took up that place well it would be the way they'd be in so inventive with the story or be inventive visually and I feel the same way with documentary films no documentary film has a hundred million dollars to throw at the screen so what do you do? Well, you've got to come up with a really, really great story. You've got to tell the story visually in a compelling way. So, so I think part of the strength of the medium is just that that the the necessity of filmmaking, you know, the ones that rise to the top, the ones that make it on Netflix or that we have at Linda's Festival, are just so amazingly done that that you you can put it up against any feature film, 
for an adult audience, I'm saying, obviously this isn't Avengers and comic books and CGI, but in terms of a, of a, of a, of a satisfying cinematic experience, the documentaries are right up there with the best feature films, I feel, right and, now. And you're combining this with something else that has gone really just red hot, which is the live-to-screen experience. I actually have a friend, a conductor. This is all he does. He yeah. flies around the world. He's got several different movies that he specializes in, and uh, he just got back from Hong Kong. And this is what he does his whole career is live to screen. Why has this gotten hot? You know, I think it's, a, I'm so glad we're having this conversation in Rochester because, you know, the Eastman Theater was built by George Eastman as a silent movie hall. There was an orchestra that played in there for the film. So silent movies were never silent. And this, so, so I think that's part of what we're discovering. We're discovering the thrill of live music through cinema, which I'm so ex excited about. Um, and, and also I think in an age of screens and phones and everybody sort of being disconnected, there's something, the theatrical experience is great too, obviously, but a concert is even that like plus, plus a thousand, right? I mean, it's just even more immersive and communal and, and special. So I think there's, a, there's something thrilling for an audience member to be in an audience, seeing a great movie and hearing the score played live. There's just nothing like it. I feel kind of badly sometimes for the for the orchestra. We just saw the Empire Strikes Back with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. Wildly entertaining. Lots of cheering and yelling in the audience, which was, you know, for an RPO concert was really thrilling. But, you know, my husband turned to me and he said, I feel kind of bad because there were moments when I forgot the orchestra was there. So, you know, there's, there's It's a that. fine line. It's a fine line. And, and um I'd like to think of the best film music concerts are the things where they breathe enough so that you can just occasionally just really, your eyes can go away from the screen and just really appreciate um, what's happening. You know, I had an interesting thing when I developed a House of Cards in concert show, which I, by necessity, it wasn't just showing the whole film and having the orchestra play, I actually curated clips and I, I led more with the music. But um, I, I think I think you raises a very interesting question, but at the end of the day, that's that's what a good film score is. A good sc a good film score does not always assert itself to you in your in the center of your listening consciousness. That's absolutely right. So, a great film score, yeah, you are going to get lost in the movie. That's just going to kind of happen. So, as a musician, what are the musicians getting out of it? Because they can't really watch that movie. They're pretty busy. Well, I'll tell you something fun. You know, I I they get something they don't get in a classical music concert is just sound back from the audience, you mm -hmm. know, which is actually really fun. Yeah. And we've become so polite in classical music. Oh, you can't applaud between moves. You can't make I mean, there's something beautiful about the silence of a concert hall. But just to have a feeling of the communication that's, that's obviously happening between the stage, the screen, and the audience, I think my best memory of this, I remember I, I conducted the Boston Pops uh, Esplanade Orchestra in Boston for the premiere of a documentary. Boston, which was such a thrill. I mean, here I am in Boston. This is a beautiful film that sort of tells this 100-year story of the marathon. And I'm in the Wang Theater in Boston, which is like 3,000 people. And we're sort of at the end of the finale. And I just took a moment. I was in a queue where the orchestra knew what they were doing. I just sort of peeked over the, over the pit there and just looked at the audience. I thought, I just like, it was unbelievable. Because it was, it, I, I, there, there's something, like here's this hometown orchestra playing this music. Here's these people seeing their story. I mean... It's, you're just connecting on a, on a level that's just so uh, beautiful, you know? I've watched this happen any number of times, and it, there, are, there are multiple ways of making that happen. What are the actual mechanics 
love for the conductor to see what this is question. happening here. It is an excellent question. There's many ways to do it. And this is, you know, I sort of, this is sort of a spontaneous thing when I pitched to, to Linda and Bree. I said, you know, she, originally we were just going to do the film at the festival, right. which, and I was going to talk after, which would have made my job a heck of a lot easier, right? <laughs> But I said, you know, so much more knowing fun. that I think this film has a has a potential to really do well theatrically, and I would love to do more concerts. And I, we have this wonderful orchestra at Eastman, so when I'm here to teach anyways, I always see sort of learning educational opportunities as well. I said to Linda and Bray, so what if we do a concert? And they were just like so into the idea. <laughs> so basically, synchronization has to be um, – has to happen obviously between music and picture. There's many ways to do it. The, the 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 most straightforward way would be to have everybody in the orchestra wear headphones and have a click what's called a click track, which is an audio metronome play in everybody's ear. But I'm not a big fan of that because I like the whole point of playing music live is having having it happen in the room and having everybody here. So what I'll be doing on Saturday and what what I prefer to do is what's have what's called a conductor video where we have streamers and punches which are these little visual markers which tell me what the tell me where the downbeat of each measure is when the big cue is coming up. There, there's a streamer that runs across the screen. They used to take a, they call it a streamer because you take a, they used to take a grease pencil and just draw a line down ten frames of film or whatever. So I'll be conducting to this version of the film that'll run in sync with what the audience will be seeing, which is obviously just a clean movie. And I'll be sort of interpolating that into musical tempo, moving my hands. And if all goes well, the music will be more or less perfectly in sync with the movie. So, yeah. Can I ask, will the instrumentation be the same as what you did for the score? Very, very <laughs> close, yeah. I, I, it's, a, it's a chamber score, so it actually works pretty well for what we're going to do. We're going to have a chamber orchestra, a couple guitar players, winds, brass, piano. Uh, there's a few electronics, which I'm going to have as pre-records playing along, so yeah. You are uh, beyond just jazz and, and beyond just the soundtracks. You're also... A really fine classical writer. You had, you had a flute concerto that knocks it out of the ballpark. Was that that a stretch for you? Because I know it's one thing to do your improving and sort of building that soundtrack, but it's another thing to create that 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 concerto that everyone's going to be sitting there listening to. It's yeah, it's sort of a, a relatively new area. I mean, I did quite a bit of this earlier in my career, but when the film career sort of took care of it, took over everything. I did less of it. I'm going back to it. In fact, I'm heading to St. Louis next week for a premiere of a song cycle with the St. Louis Symphony and Leonard Slatkin, uh, which is I'm really excited about. And uh, writing concert music is is something that I've always dreamed about doing more, uh, more, more regularly, and it's something I'm starting to do. I like it for one reason. I feel scared and challenged by it, which really is great, because at a certain point, I mean, I know how to write a score. Each one is difficult and challenging, but I've done that many, many, many times. This is like solving a completely different problem, uh, and I love it. It's really, really thrilling. I feel like I'm each commission I'm doing, I just learn more and more and sort of get better at it. You know, we can't let you go without talking to you about your Eastman experience. You went to the Eastman <laughs> School of Music. Why did you choose to go to school there? I guess I could say if I was psychic, I knew that my wife was going to, of 30, now with 35 years, was going to be there, and I had to go find <laughs> my soulmate, right? <laughs> Which is true, actually. Um, but but uh, Eastman, even back then, this is, you know, I'm, uh, this was 84, I think. No, 81. I came in in 81. Um, 
I, I loved jazz music. I loved classical music. I wanted to write music. There were only a few schools, especially at that time. I, I was interested in film. There were only a few places in the country which it really felt ticked off all the boxes. I think it was Eastman and maybe the New England Conservatory in, in Boston. Those were the two, and Eastman was always at the top of my list. Also, as a brass player, as a trauma player, I knew of the great tradition of, of teachers here at the school. So it was just sort of this excellence of the school, which still exists today, that just pulled me. So besides your wife, um, how else did Eastman prepare you for the path that you walked on? A lot of ways. In fact, I was just teaching some lessons today, and I had this wonderful conversation with a student asking me, well, like, how much should I work on the bones of music writing and these sort of esoteric things, which, or how much should I just develop my career? And I, I was thinking back to some of the opportunities that had presented them to me. And, you know, I mentioned Pollock a little earlier. That was a very important film for me where I was hired very at the end, you know, and I had to do it very quickly. Um, I was very lucky to get that call and to have that opportunity, absolutely, but but I didn't have a lot of time. Well, I could never have written that score in the three weeks that it got written, and if I had didn't have this this wonderful training of of working on deadlines, of of learning how to assimilate styles, learning how to develop a voice, all those things, Eastman is really sort of. Uh, one of the excellent, fine, finest universities in the country, in the world, really, for, for music. So um, I think it was the whole experience of the school. It was the students, it was the performing, it was the composing, it was all of it. You and your wife, Joan, decided to create the Beale Institute for Film Music and Contemporary Media, and you gave it to the Eastman School of Music. You could have given it to any number of schools, including schools like in California that have big film schools and they have big music programs as well. You didn't. You brought it here to Rochester. Why did you do that? Well, you know, um, aside from the obvious reason of being an alumni, I, I felt like uh, there's a certain culture at the school that would benefit from it. Other schools already have this. Eastman, did, at the time we made the gift and it started our program, we didn't really have a film music program here. There was talk about doing it, but I felt like this is the perfect time to really um, start to create my legacy as an artist and a teacher and to give back, and which I'm doing here this week, which is so much fun. And, and also really sort of vote, vote with our time and, 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 and resources in this idea that that film music is 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 becoming not this sort of marginalized ghettoized part of culture it's part of our culture and so uh, uh, we we want more film composers we want we want the next great film composers to to continue to populate this art form and to carry it forward and i feel like the composer of of today and tomorrow is really someone my vision of the composer of the future really is Someone who writing for film and media is just part of what you do. It's just like Philip Glass is a great example. He has operas, he does film scores, he writes for dance. I feel like that's where the whole conversation is going in terms of artists, really. You know, this the screen is with us. It's never going away. Storytelling is never going away. And really, in terms of preserving all the things I love about music, about the art of music, about the live orchestra, all these things are really going to be carried forward if we if we open up the tent to... To this, to this part of our, our storytelling. And do you feel that can be accomplished via the East School of Music? Oh, well, you know, with not certainly not by myself. I mean, gosh, you know, Mark Waters uh, here, who we re-recruited, is just an excellent professor. There's so many people. It's, 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 it's like throwing a stone into the pond, and you just see the ripples, and, and I'm seeing this happen. It's just so exciting, you know, to see the enthusiasm, uh, 
the, the work that's being done to really develop this program. We have a two years master's program in film scoring, which is in its in its own way very unique. A lot of the other top tier schools like like uh, USC, for example, has, it's only one year, and really we give our students two years, which really gives them time to really develop their whole artistic persona. Um, yeah, I, 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 there's always more work to do. There's, we have a lot of dreams and a lot of ideas for the future, but considering that really the program itself is only in its third year, I, th I think we're making really great progress. Do you think there will come a day when uh, a regular Philharmonics series will have the audience come in, sit down, and listen to an evening of music that is Beethoven and maybe Haydn and some movie music as well. Oh man, you you are you are you are preaching my my book there. You talking my book. That is exactly what I think it needs to happen. I mean, one of my biggest um, goals really is to not just have these one-off concert events, but really to have film music just be another thing that lives right alongside. Um, a concerto or um, a piece of concert music. One of the most f uh, wonderful uh, f um, alumni friend of mine had me out to uh, Champaign-Urbana for a concert a couple couple years ago, and we did just that. We did uh, we did my clarinet concerto, I played my trumpet concerto, and then he conducted three other film suites. And it was one of the one of the concerts of my work that I'm most proud about uh, because really um, it enables you to enjoy film music but not feel like it's a special thing that that can only live in one place it's just it's like you know there's only two kinds right good or bad who cares about what other distinctions there are those are all meaningless i want to thank you both for coming in and talking to us today thanks to jeff beal thank you to linda maroney for our chat uh, if you would like information about the one take film festival you can go to otff.org I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.